Kristen Rob Finkbeiner, powered by Moms Rising. We have a spectacular show for you this week that you are going to love, love, love hearing. We talk about the power of comedy to create real change, to shift the narrative, to lift lives. Then we dive into why legislation matters, even when it seems like legislation can't move forward, and tips on how to keep legislation moving, even in hard times. Next up, we dive into the ACLU and what's happening at the state level and how that impacts you no matter where you live. And we close the show talking about showing up for racial justice, tips, tactics, conversation points that you can use near or far in your community to help lift justice. We're gonna jump right in with our first guest. We have a hilarious, uplifting, powerful, nation-changing duo, Caitlin Barlow and Catherine Renee Thomas, creators of The Cleave, with us. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Hello. Thank you for having us. Thank you. That was quite the intro. I love it. Oh my gosh. Kristen, your energy. I'm obsessed. I'm drinking some extra <laughs> coffee. I put some cayenne pepper in it, some turmeric, and some powdered ginger. So that is the secret to energy for me. Speaking of secrets, comedy is the secret superpower mind changer. We know from MRI studies of the brain that when people are locked in a partisan mindset and logic is in another room, in another house, maybe even another city, not present at the moment, we can bring logic back to mind through using comedy. People don't necessarily know that. And you're using that beautifully as a super secret power. Caitlin, do you want to start a little bit about what does it mean to you to have comedy as a secret secret power? And how would you describe that power? (laughs) I don't know that I necessarily think of it as a superpower because it's just such a proven thing that it's like, it's not even supernatural. It's just a fact that comedy can influence not only how people think, but also policy. And, um, you know, Katie and I have been writing partners for a long time, but we started our project, The Cleave, which is a satirical momfluencer account, basically, because we wanted to change the state of American motherhood. We were both default caretakers during the pandemic. And as I'm sure your listeners are very aware, (laughs) there was a lot going on at the time with moms. And so we really, you know, we wanted to use comedy to raise awareness of the toxic state of American motherhood, and then ultimately have an influence on policy to make our country more equitable for mothers. So, so, so important. And Catherine, do you want to share your perspective on this superpower that is maybe not so secret? Yes. Well, I mean, I I think it is a little bit of a superpower uh, because I think it can get, Caitlin and I, we're going to have a big fight about this later now, but I think you can get so much accomplished with with humor. And I think that comedians have uh, a way of being able to pull back the curtain on certain truths and expose certain truths in a way that is more palatable, a way that is more engaging than a lot of other ways where people may check out if they're feeling lectured at, where people may check out if they're feeling attacked. Um, Laughter unites us. Laughter, you know, as you were saying, studies show that that humor and laughter actually like affect our mental and physical health. It, it, it can unite us. So, um, 
Caitlin and I have been having a great time making satirical headlines with the cleave. Uh, you know, we started it because we were feeling a little bit tired of the wine mommy memes, you know, which are, um, which are funny and relatable, but, uh, in reality, if you think a little deeper on those, uh, we are in a state where our society is not helping mothers in at all in a lot of arenas. And so how do they help? Well, you know, have a drink, mommy. It's like, this is the way that we are dealing with our issues. So yeah, comedy, we want to go a little deeper. Yeah. And one thing that, you know, has been said time and time again, I can't remember who said it first, is that true comedy is actually rooted in tragedy and the tragedy mm-hmm. of moms in America right now being in one of the only countries in the world where we don't have access to paid family medical leave when a new baby arrives or there's a serious health crisis that strikes and you know where childcare costs more than college where we don't have a care infrastructure that is caught up to our modern workforce anytime much less during a pandemic is in fact the definition of a rolling tragedy across our country so no greater time than now for this comedic sort of leverage point to help move change caitlin during the pandemic what were the most popular resonant moments of comedy that really touched on that nexus between the tragedy of our times and the comedy of the moment yeah um you know like i said we started posting right in the middle of the pandemic. And I would say the ones that resonated most deeply, a lot of a lot of the ones about the division of labor uh, were pretty popular because, you know, I think a lot of moms not only took on a he- more of the heavy lifting with caretaking, but also many mothers had to continue to work while that happened. Um, we also, you know, right in the middle of that, um, you know, Roe v. Wade was overturned. And so I texted Katie the morning that happened and, you know, was like, all right, we have some writing to do. Um, <laughs> so a, a lot of those posts that, um, you know, commented, especially, you know, it was also, there was a formula shortage at the time. So we were, you know, writing about the absurdity of politicians telling us we had to have more babies at the time we couldn't feed them. Ridiculous. It's ridiculous. It's so yeah. ridiculous that yeah. you can write yeah. a whole Shakespearean comedy about it. I mean, it's ridiculous. Absolutely. So, Catherine, yeah. when you put out this content, what was the response of people like in the audience? Were they like, thank mm-hmm. God someone is stating the obvious in a funny way. Now I feel a little lighter and I might have to drink one less glass of wine than the night. Right. Well, it, it was really awesome to get response responses from people where they felt like they were being heard in a different way. Um, Part of comedy is really exposing truths. And I think that we're at an exciting time where mothers are starting to feel like they can be more honest about their experience and their difficulties and the parts of motherhood that uh, are ugly and you know, society might look at as being um, a bad thing, but um, the ability to really like connect with people in a way where they see that ugly stuff and feel heard was really powerful. Um, Yeah. It, it, uh, we got some really good responses and people were just like, yep, I feel heard. And that to me is a huge win. Yeah, I mean, being a mom is a greater predictor of wage and hiring discrimination than gender. Mm-hmm. 
And moms mm-hmm. of color experience wage and hiring discrimination to the tune of Latina moms just earning 46 cents to a white dad's dollar and black moms just 56 cents to a white dad's dollar. Now, how does this relate to comedy, mm-hmm. the moment, and being seen? Well, moms traditionally in our country are framed in such a way of discrimination that when we say what's happening to us without comedy, it's often framed as shrill or complaining Mm -hmm. or whatever. So comedy is a bridge to actually sharing a reality that is often closed due to discrimination that impacts not just in wages and hiring, but also in our culture around us. So it is beautiful. I love that you're doing this. Thank you for speaking to the moms of America. Caitlin, one thing that you mentioned is that something that's popular that you see is people talking about, you know, uh, the disparities in labor at home. And I have been thrilled to see an increased conversation through the pandemic about the work of parenting, the unpaid work that might be at home or on a playground or in a library or wherever you're parenting that goes into parenting and that is disproportionately carried by people who are moms and the paid work that people are being pushed out of much needed jobs because there's no care infrastructure support for the unpaid work that we must do. How have you seen a transformation in the understanding of the paid and unpaid work related to caregiving through the pandemic? And do you think that's going to shift public policy? This is to Caitlin first and then Catherine next, because this is a double. Okay. Um, well, I, you know, I will say, I think the biggest change that I've noticed is really just that the conversation is out there and, you know, growing up and becoming a mom, I don't really remember having this conversation in a real way until the pandemic. I think that it, it was just this, it, it finally brought to light all of these issues that for whatever reason, really weren't out in the open or people maybe didn't believe us or, you know, and finally we were forced to reckon with them in terms of, will it change policy? Well, yes, I'm hopeful that it will. Do I think it's going to happen overnight? No, uh, because, you know, if you look back uh, again and again, the least popular cause is women in politics and our, our issues are consistently put on the back burner over and over and over again um, is, you know, as, and that's happened recently with, you know, losing um, the, you know, the child, oh, I'm going to get, I have, I have a one year old tax credit. Yes. Child tax credit. I, sorry, I have two small children and I forget words a lot, Um, (laughs) but you guys understand. Um, So, you know, I think that like, I would say the needle will 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 move forward in terms of uh, mothers getting more support. Do I have faith that it's going to happen overnight? No, but I think it will slowly and with a lot of work happen. Yeah, and and adding on to what Caitlin said, I think there are some really interesting movements that have come out of uh, the pandemic with the kind of recognition of. How much extra labor women were doing. Uh, if you look at like Reshma Sojani's uh, Marshall Plan for Moms, that uh, her whole idea behind that is paying women and other caretakers who are at home with their families for the work that they're doing. Uh, and they've she's done a great job of highlighting the different ways that we need to do better for women. Uh, and and we're starting to see things. There's a great documentary called Fair Play 
I'm not sure if you've seen that, but it's it's a wonderful uh, documentary based on Eve Rodsky's book where they follow a few families throughout the pandemic and the husbands in the film are seen starting to learn a little bit more about how their wives are are bearing the brunt of all this. And so seeing stuff like that come out is making me hopeful too, because we're, we've got the conversation going, but we got to keep it going because now that people aren't seeing us in a pandemic anymore, this kind of, this highlight of women being teachers, workers, mothers, cleaners all at once, those, those pictures of us in the media are starting to go away. And so we got to keep that ball rolling. And I'm so thrilled to say that the ball is still rolling. We saw a couple of weeks ago, President Biden, Vice President Harris and former President Clinton all come together and uplift the continued need to build a care infrastructure on the 30th anniversary of the unpaid Family Medical Leave Act, calling for paid family medical leave, calling for child care to be affordable for everyone, calling for justice for parents and celebrating some of the big wins that just happened at the end of 2022. The Pregnant Workers Fairness Act finally passed. The Pump Act mm-hmm. for Nursing Mothers just finally passed. 30% increase in child care funding just finally passed. Those aren't the transformational changes that we need. We still have a long way to go, but we have people at the very center of our political dialogue pushing for more. So it's narrative shifting, it's comedy, it's leadership pushing, it's legislative change, it's everybody sharing their story, it's making jokes, it's supporting and lifting one another, and it's listening to and sharing also the cleave. We have about (laughs) one minute left. How can people listen to the cleave? How can they share it? What's going on? How can they get involved? And who wants to go first? I can go first. Um, So currently the cleave can be found on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and Facebook at the cleave life. Um, And you can also see our website at thecleave.com. A lot of what we've been doing now is satirical momfluencer posts and incorporating all kinds of the fun stuff that you've been talking about uh, into into our humor. So you can find us there. Um, and you can also check out Caitlin and I's show that we were uh, producers, creators, writers on called Teachers, which was on TV Land, uh, where we took on a whole assortment of issues involving education, educators, uh, and basically an environment where women are being held to pretty unfair standards in a female-dominated profession. So you can check out Teachers, which is on TV Land. Streaming many places. <laughs> in all the places. Thank you so yes. much, Caitlin Barlow and Catherine Renee Thomas, creators of The Cleave, for joining us today. Thank you for all you do. Thank you for bringing laughter and change. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. We're going to take a quick break, but stick around. We'll be right back with our next guest talking about what happens inside the Beltway, and tips that you can use to help move legislation from outside the Beltway. It's a great segment. We'll be back in a quick second. Welcome to Breaking Through with me, Kristen Ralph Finkbeiner, powered by Moms Rising. We are joined right now by a guest, Who knows all the things? Who has action in her title? A guest you are going to want to listen to and maybe even take notes. Welcome, Kat Rowland with 
the Progressive Caucus Action Fund. Welcome, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Kristen. It's great to be here. I'm so excited because you are inside the Beltway in Washington, D.C., and you are watching things that are bills, legislation, move or not move. What gets pushed forward? What gets stopped? You have all the tools that people need to know and understand at your disposal. Can you tell us first a little bit about what does the Progressive Caucus Action Fund do just to sort of center our listeners in our conversation? Absolutely. Um, so the Progressive Caucus Action Fund is a nonprofit organization that works to unite the progressive movement around common goals so that we can fight as effectively as possible for bold and people-centered policy change. And I am the legislative affairs director there. Which is awesome. And you just recently wrote a great explainer on legislation called Beyond Bills. What was in that that everyone should know? So obviously with Republicans in charge of the House, we don't expect a lot of legislative victories on big progressive policies over the next two years, since Republicans are going to control what bills actually get voted on in the House of Representatives. However, that does not mean that no progress is possible because members of Congress have options that are available to all lawmakers to amplify an issue or build momentum for a policy, regardless of whether or not their party is in control in Congress. And these tools include letters to executive branch agencies in the private sector, hearing questions, investigations, committee reports, public statements, amicus briefs, direct action, and more. And understanding those tools and their uses is really critical for the public, for lawmakers, and for advocates as they figure out how they are going to advance their priorities during this period of divided government. And that's the topic of the explainer that you mentioned. And how can people find the explainer? Because like people are listening right now, they're like, ooh, I want that explainer. How can I find that explainer? This explainer can maybe work with my personal family or in business too. I mean, you know, a lot of the tips for breaking through barriers between Democrats and Republicans can be useful elsewhere too. So how can they find it? Yeah, you can read our full breakdown of tools that members have beyond bills at progressivecaucusactionfund.org forward slash beyond dash bills. You can also sign up for our weekly newsletter called the DC Download. And every week that runs through what's going on in Congress from hearings to key votes to major negotiations. And you can sign up for that at progressivecaucusactionfund.org forward slash DC download. And I'll be sure to share those resources with your team too, um, to help your listeners find that easily. I love that. We'll tweet it out for sure. Awesome. So when you are inside the Beltway bubble and things called legislation, I like to call legislation things I'm noticing lately. This is very humorous. So I'm going to just clarify the things I'm talking about are legislative activities. When things are moving or not moving, what tips do you have for people like just like really precise tips that you've seen work or not work? Does calling your member of Congress work? Should you be bugging staff? Should you take to Twitter? Like what tools does a regular person who is a constituent have at their disposal that are sort of practical tips for daily pushes? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I think the answer briefly is all of the above, depending on the situation. Um, You know, I think you... It takes a little work to get to know the member that you're working with and what they're going to respond to. Um, Do they respond well to being called out online? Do they respond well to a letter campaign or a call-in campaign? 
If there was one tip though that I have that works across members, I would say it's organization because it is unfortunately really easy to ignore one person, a couple phone calls. It's really hard to ignore like hundreds of letters or hundreds of phone calls from constituents that are all asking you to do the same thing. And so to the extent that folks out there are able to find others in their community or in their friend group or in their families who share their concerns, getting together and making a concerted effort to push for the things that you want is really, really powerful and hard to ignore. And you can do that through a group like Moms Rising or the National Women's Law Center or the National Partnership for Women and Families or Ultraviolet or Supermajority or, you know, many, many different organizations actually help to organize people because the thing that can be hard is figuring out those leverage points for when those pushes will make a difference. So there are lots of organizations like Moms Rising who are keeping our eyes out. We're reading the newsletters. We're saying, okay, now is a moment where if, you know, hundreds of people call your member of Congress, we have a leverage point, a fulcrum point for change. But it's not just Moms Rising. So, you know, you can join any kind of group that matches with your priorities for our country and be linked up with other people so you can be part of that wave of change. I'm so glad you mentioned that. And you can also organize your friends, families, your dogs, your cats, your pets to all be in a group together and join a group or on your own without a group. So there's all kinds of ways to make change. I love that. So when we're talking about um, change, one of the things that we've seen make a big change over and over again is what we like to think of internally as the Get a Clue project. It's sort of sharing our stories, sharing our experiences. And everybody has a story. For example, everybody gets sick, but not everybody has a chance to get better. So we all have a healthcare story. Either we've gotten sick and we've had access to healthcare and it's helped us get better, or we've gotten sick and we haven't had access to adequate healthcare and we've really struggled. So that's an example of everybody has a story and your story about a topic either way can give members of Congress a clue about what's really happening with their constituents. Can you share from your perspective, the impact or lack of impact, in case that's where you're going, about shared stories um, from constituents? Yeah, thank you for the work that you do there, because stories are so, so powerful. And, you know, I think that folks who work in Congress, um, it, it, it can be easy for members to dismiss a policy that they're hearing from a constituent as too far out there or unachievable when you're talking theoretically, right? It's a lot harder for a lawmaker to face a real person who's telling them what they've gone through and what they need that they are asking for too much. And I'll, you know, I'll stick with the healthcare example that you just gave. You know, let's say you have a hearing with pharmaceutical company CEOs who are raising drug prices and you have a member ask something like, my constituent is working full time and still can't afford to buy your company's drug that her child needs to survive. Is your bottom line more important than this child's health? You know, that's a really powerful moment. And when it gets covered on the news, it shows people what's at stake in these policy fights and which of their representatives are fighting for them and which are not. I mean, that's so true. We had some guests at the State of the Union with members of Congress. So it's really um, an important and powerful way to make a difference by sharing your story. Um, one of our storytellers is about childcare and the fact that childcare costs more than college and is unattainable. Um, and so how we can work to fix that with Senator Murray. 
So given that there's a divided government, given that things are chaotic inside the Beltway and probably seem even more chaotic looking in from outside the Beltway, do you have hope? And if so, why? Yeah, you know, I started working in Congress as an intern during a period of divided government. In fact, most of my work there occurred during periods of divided government. Um, But during that time, I still saw perceptions of what's possible shift so strongly in a progressive direction because I saw organizers and advocates doing the kind of foundation building work that's necessary to make the changes that we want to see. And we've seen so many policies that were once considered fringe, like Medicare for all, become incredibly popular ideas that are really core to our fight for working families. And we've seen some of those ideas even become reality, like student debt relief. And it took years of work by activists and policy wonks and staff and members of Congress to get us there, but they did it. And so I know that progress is possible because I've seen it happen. And you know, my hope is that explainers like our Beyond Bills piece and others that we have in the works make it a little bit easier for folks to achieve that progress moving forward. So yeah, I am hopeful. I'm hopeful too. Now, if you're driving, do not take notes or text yourself what I'm about to ask and the answer. How, again, can people find the Beyond Bills? Because if you're not driving, write this down immediately. How can people find Beyond Bills and how can they get involved? Yes, absolutely. So you can go on our website, progressivecaucusactionfund.org. You can find that particular explainer if you go to progressivecaucusactionfund.org forward slash beyond bills. Um, and you can also sign up for our weekly newsletter, the DC download that runs through what's going on in Congress every week that Congress is in session. And you can sign up for that at progressivecaucusactionfund.org forward slash DC download. Love. And for listeners outside the Beltway, what's your favorite thing about working inside the Beltway and making change in the U.S. Capitol? It has to be the people. I was congressional staff for a long time, and it's a really hard job. Um, you work long hours, and it can be it can be hard to stay hopeful, um, especially during periods when you're not seeing the kind of progress that you want to see. But you're working alongside people who share your values and who are really, really committed to the work that you're all doing. And so getting to know those types of people from all around the country and work in solidarity with one another is super, super powerful. And I still have lots of very close friends from those experiences. And so I know there are a lot of stereotypes about Washington fat cats and what have you. And it couldn't be further from the truth because the people who do this work are are by and large really, really lovely. And that has been absolutely the most rewarding part. I love that you lifted that because I have found the same to be true, both of people who are doing the work and of elected leaders. We hear a lot of news about, you know, the horrible, awful, very bad elected leaders. But what people don't know is there's a bazillion unsung heroes who are members of Congress who are fighting every day in really great ways for their constituents. We just don't hear them because they're not loudly awful. So did you find that to be true as well? A hundred percent. I worked for some really, really wonderful members. Um, and you're you're exactly right. We don't hear about the good ones. And I think we could all probably do a, a little more work to lift those stories up because there are, there are people who are fighting really hard for their constituents um, and we're lucky to have them there. Yeah, so true. So listeners, 
get involved with the Progressive Caucus Action Fund. You can get resources like the Beyond Bills explainer that was just written and shared. You can also stay involved and get the weekly newsletter. You can get involved in all kinds of ways to make a big difference in our nation's capital as you hold out hope for change. Keep hope alive, people. If we look back across our history, we are changing the direction of our country for the better, but we have to keep on it because we know what happens when we take our hands off the wheels of democracy. Very bad things. So <laughs> democracy is meant to be a continuous engagement process and a way to be engaged continuously is not only through voting, which you should do, but also through the Progressive Caucus Action Fund. Thank you so much for being on, Kat. Thank you for all that you do. Thank you for sharing your story with us. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. We're going to take a quick break. Don't go away. Next up, we're talking with the ACLU about what's happening in the judicial branch and why it matters to you. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to Breaking Through with me, Kristen Ralph Finkbeiner, powered by Moms Rising. We are joined right now by somebody from the ACLU. And I feel like we should have a cheer like the ACLU helps you. Like, I'm not sure if there is one. We can ask in a moment. Sam Davis is coming to us from the ACLU of North Carolina. Welcome, Sam. Uh, thanks for having me. It's really great to be here. I'm so excited that you're here. Are there cheers like the ACLU helps you? Like all kinds of cheers, I can imagine, because I love the ACLU. We love the ACLU. And I feel like there should be like a whole cheering squad. Yeah, I, um, I'm i not going to speak for the whole ACLU. I think that's, that's not my area of expertise, though. Um, <laughs> but But I'm sure they're out there. I'm sure they're out there. I know they're out there. I could just feel them. So the ACLU is here protecting our rights. And for listeners who maybe haven't heard of the ACLU, can you just share a little bit about what is the core mission of the ACLU as sort of a reference point as we dive into our conversation about what's happening in Supreme Courts at the state level? Of course. Uh, so the, the ACLU is uh, an organization dedicated to protecting the civil rights and civil liberties of people across the country. Um, so the ACLU is both a national organization and a state and local organization. Uh, there are attorneys working at the national level on kind of big programmatic areas like voting rights, reproductive rights, uh, criminal justice reform, things like that. And then there are attorneys and organizers working in each state uh, at state affiliates who are doing a lot of the same kind of work, but focus specifically on the issues that are facing you know, the residents of, of any particular state. So I'm based at the affiliate uh, in North Carolina where I focus on civil rights issues affecting all North Carolinians. I love it. And we have at Moms Rising a lot, a very lot, lot, lot of members in North Carolina. Hello, North Carolina, shout out to North Carolina. And what happens in any state, of course, has an impact on every state. So what's happening in North Carolina right now around voting rights is really important. And can you share a little bit about why it's important, why it's weird, why we need to keep focused on it and what's happening? Yeah. So I think in a lot of ways, North Carolina is a microcosm for what's happening across the country. So North Carolina is a pretty evenly divided political state. Um, both major parties, depending on how you count, uh, typically get about support from about half the population. Um, 
but we don't see an evenly divided government. We don't see uh, the the will of, of those voters often reflected in the policy choices that elected officials make. Instead, uh, thanks to gerrymandering, among other things, uh, we see one party rule uh, across government and, and really some of the more extreme policies that are targeting uh, everyone, but especially vulnerable and, and marginalized North Carolinians. So if you care about how democracy functions across the country, um, you should be really concerned about some of the things we're seeing in North Carolina right now. And for the person who regularly votes, what would the impact of this be? Yeah, so you can see the impact really across a lot of um, civil rights issues and, and just across the whole policymaking apparatus for the state. So in North Carolina in 2022, um, Republicans expanded their majority in both the state house and the state Senate uh, to the point where there's only one seat uh, that prevents uh, Republicans from overriding the governor's veto uh, anytime uh, they pass a law. And so the legislative session is just starting and, and we're starting to see the kinds of things that legislators are focusing on and uh, their issues that, that could really have significant consequences for people in North Carolina and people across the country. So it's things like legislating how teachers can talk about LGBTQ issues in schools. Um, there's a, a bill that would make teachers, require teachers to report on students' gender identity and sexual orientation to their parents, um, which, as I'm sure you know, can be really devastating for, for students who don't come from supportive families. Um, there's a bill that would increase the penalties for protest, uh, certain forms of protest, which we've seen used to target civil rights activists, Black Lives Matter protesters, people protesting against police brutality. Um, and then there's, there's discussions about uh, potentially rolling back reproductive freedoms in North Carolina. So right now, uh, in general, abortion is legal up to 20 weeks in North Carolina. That's one of the more uh, permissive policies across the South. Um, North Carolina is really a beacon for people in the South seeking safe reproductive health care. Uh, if that changes, that, that's obviously going to harm North Carolinians, but it's, it's going to be a, a, have potentially devastating consequences for, for people across the country. That is devastating. I, I got like fully 150% depressed while you were talking about that because I know from polls in North Carolina and nationwide that the majority of actual voters of the American people do not support those harmful and regressive policies. Um, and so how I just have to interject right here, how do you keep your hope up? What does the legal system give us in terms of not just hope, but change and holding the line for justice? Yeah, that's that's a, a really good question. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I think what I feel very fortunate about uh, doing this work in North Carolina, there's, there's really an in incredible community of activists and advocates here that are going to continue fighting uh, to preserve and expand civil rights and civil liberties. Um, so obviously, I, you know, the work that the ACLU does uh, every day, you know, we're fighting in courts, but we're also uh, working to organize and to advocate, um, you know, engaging policymakers, uh, doing not just legal advocacy, but but trying to build power in communities to to challenge these these oppressive systems. Um, in terms of the legal system, I think 
North Carolina is somewhat unique. Uh, we have partisan elections here in North Carolina. And uh, recently, the state Supreme Court flipped. Uh, it had previously been uh, a 4-3 majority of justices affiliated with the Democratic Party. It is now a 5-2 majority of justices affiliated with the Republican Party. Um, that's probably going to have significant consequences for the kinds of claims that are going to be successful in state court, as we're already seeing. So when request to rehear a law is granted, what happens? Do we need public support to come forward and kind of pressure the U.S. Supreme Court members because, after all, they are elected officials? Do we need people pressuring the governor and legislators? Do we need donations to the ACLU? Are you, you know, in there, everybody, like, on the TV shows, you know, getting all of the papers together and the arguments together? Like, how can people who are listening support when we have a situation where the courts are possibly ruling against the will of the people? Yeah, so I, I think what you're referring to is so the North Carolina Supreme Court, uh, after it flipped, decided to grant a petition for rehearing, uh, saying that it's going to revisit two decisions from last year that were really landmark civil rights decisions. Uh, there was one decision that found that the state constitution prohibits partisan gerrymandering. Um, and then there was another decision striking down a uh, voter ID requirement. Uh, because the court found that it was it was motivated by an intent to uh, discriminate against African-American voters. The, ordinarily, a court is not going to just rehear a case because the composition of the court changes, because even though judges are elected as partisan, uh, you know, elected on a partisan ticket, there's this idea that once they become judges, they're going to be nonpartisan actors who are going to care about things like the rule of law and stability and respect for precedent. That doesn't appear to be the case, unfortunately, right now in North Carolina. I think what this petition signals is that the court doesn't see those kinds of values as important. Um, so I think what can people do? Uh, I think the most important thing is to care about these kinds of elections. Um, I think in almost every state, some judges are elected, if not judges and people like prosecutors, sheriffs. Um, many of the people who kind of make up the legal apparatus are elected at the state level. And so it's, it's just absolutely critical. You know, obviously, big elections like U.S. Senate, president, those really matter. But a lot of the day-to-day -day laws that affect people's lives are going to be determined by officials who are elected by the voters. Um, so that's really critical. I think another thing is just continuing to bring visibility to these issues and and put pressure on on the existing system so that um, that there are different ways of expressing the will of the people and so that uh, these officials know that the people care and are watching and, and that's a, another way of, of holding officials accountable. So should people also sign up to get involved with the ACLU overall and also with North Carolina, even if they're not living in North Carolina? Definitely, definitely. I would encourage everyone to get involved with their local affiliate. Um, it, I think ACLUs across the country do great, great work, just keeping people informed, getting people organized, showing up for protests. Um, it's really a great way to build power in your local community. Um, and then, yeah, by supporting the ACLU, you're going to support 
that organizing work, but also the work of legal advocates across the country who are trying to push back on these uh, really regressive laws. And I also might add listeners, I want to double down on what Sam just said about being sure that you vote down ballot. We want to vote for everybody who's on the ballot, not just the president, not just members of Congress, not just your state legislature, not just your city council members, but also your judges and your prosecutors, et cetera, et cetera. However, that is happening in your community. But don't just vote. Many of those offices run unopposed, people, unopposed. So keep your eye out for excellent members of the legal community who would be spectacular in those positions and recruit them to run for office. And by recruiting, I mean, find those people if you can. You can check with local lawyers to see who they would recommend if you need some tips. But find those people and then get seven other people to help support them. Create like a support network around them because we also need more people running for office in that area. What are your thoughts? Absolutely. I think uh, you want people from a really diverse range of backgrounds uh, to be involved uh, and get involved in these positions. Um, you know, before I was at the ACLU, I um, worked for a judge who was a civil rights advocate. Um, there are not a lot of civil rights advocates on the bench. There are not a lot of public defenders or uh, people who've advocated for workers, unions. Um, historically, it's the path to being uh, elected judge has been to become a prosecutor. And um, I think there's studies that show the system is fairer and more reflective of, of the concerns of all people when it actually looks like what the community looks like. Um, so I think it's, it's absolutely critical that um, we get engaged in these, you know, everyone gets engaged in these kinds of elections because they, they really do matter. They really uh, end up dictating a lot of what the legal system looks like on a day-to-day -day basis. For sure. And also... Now with Google, you can Google the names that are on your ballot, find out are they for or against justice and liberty? Are they for or against civil rights? And then vote accordingly. Thank goodness for Google, right? When you're voting. Thank you so much for being on Sam Davis with the ACLU of North Carolina. Thank you for all you do. Listeners, support the ACLU, support the ACLU of North Carolina. Get involved, stay involved, and never give up. Thank you, Sam. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. We're going to take a quick break. Don't go away. Next up, we have showing up for racial justice, conversation tips, tactics for you to use in your community, and how to move justice forward. We'll be back in just a moment. Me, Kristen Ralph Finkbeiner, powered by Moms Rising. We are joined by a spectacular, amazing, wonderful guest, Aaron Heaney of Showing Up for Racial Justice, also known as Surge. Welcome, Aaron. Thanks for having me, Kristen. I am super, super, super excited that you're on. I love your resources. I love your organization, Showing Up for Racial Justice. As we begin our conversation and just to center people in what we're talking about, can you share a little bit about Surge, the mission of Surge, and what's happening? Absolutely. Yeah. So Surge is an organization that works to undermine the power of the right and bring more white people into fights for racial justice across the country. And we do this work because we know too often white people either sit on the sidelines or we are antagonistic 
towards movements for justice, often led by Black people and people of color. And so we work to change that and bring lots more people in. And we have been really involved in the work, the campaign in Atlanta that many people on your podcast may have heard about in the last couple of weeks. Um, last week, a law enforcement officer killed um, Tort, who is a young man who's part of a group of activists who were using direct action to stop a police training facility from being built in a forest. It happened actually on like almost 400 acres of publicly owned land on the edge of the city of Atlanta, um, where they're planning to build a militarized police training facility. Um, and it's in a forest actually, Kristen, it was called the lungs of the city by city planners. And the neighborhood is surrounded um, mostly by black folks. Um, the police union and private corporations have been pushing for this to be built. Um, it, it actually includes a fake city um, in the forest that, where people are planning to practice raids, high-speed chases, shooting ranges, um, and it's going to cost the, the community uh, more than $90 million. And so TORT has, was part of a broader campaign um, of community members fighting back um, to stop the project people that were taking direct action, knocking doors uh, and talking with neighbors. And so search has been been part of that coalition um, because we know that, yeah, white communities sometimes can be in, in the way of winning on issues like this. And so our role has been really building support in majority white parts of Atlanta um, who otherwise might be against this. And so we, we released this Stop Cop City Toolkit last week to bring more people across the country into this work who were turning to us and wanting to turn their outrage and their heartbreak into action. And so since then, people have been, you know, raising funds and uh, taking action in their local cities in solidarity with the folks on the ground in Atlanta. I have been so helped by your toolkits at Surge um, over time, over years and time and time again. For people who are listening, no matter where you live, if you're in Atlanta, if you're not, if you're anywhere in the United States of America, police violence is still at epidemic levels. And I would imagine that the toolkit for Atlanta is useful in any place. Can you share a little bit about the toolkits that you do and how people can get access to them, as well as if you think the toolkit about Atlanta would be important for people to have, even if they're not in Atlanta? Oh, absolutely. If you're in Atlanta, we have a strong chapter there and the toolkit is a great resource. But, you know, we know issues like this um, don't always make the news, but they're alive and well in our communities across the country. So no, no matter where we live, we know that um uh, we know that communities of color are under attack and we know that, you know, police budgets take up the largest percentage of all of our uh, local budgets. And so we would encourage people, you can find the toolkit on our website, which is surge, S-U-R-J dot org. Um, you can find that tool toolkit, many others, and you can also find where to get connected with your local chapter. Surge has over 175 chapters across the country. So odds are good there's somebody close to you uh, that's also wanting to take action um, and that you can connect with. And in your toolkits, you have tips for talking with other people, tips for talking across divides, tips for talking with children. So while we have our listeners on with us, what are your top tips about how white parents should be talking with white children about police violence, especially in this time when the news is bringing this important information to us? Oh, absolutely. Well, the research, Kristen, is super clear that not talking to our kids about race and racism means that they pick up the stories and the feelings that we that are prevalent in dominant culture. And we know that dominant culture tells us that the police are here to protect us. They reinforce racist stereotypes. They normalize the absurd amount of public money that we spend on the police. And so we know, Kristen, that if we're not talking about race with our kids, they're picking it up from other places. And they're going to learn messages from the media, from their teachers, 
And so at Surge, we really believe that kids deserve to understand in an age-appropriate way what's happening, why you're feeling and responding the way you are, and your family's role in sticking up for what's right and, and providing support and solidarity to communities who are more on the front lines. And we know that sometimes people count kids out, but kids know that something's not right. And, you know, we saw across the country, especially I'm thinking in like 2020, um, lots of young people um, showed up in the streets um, against police violence and they're ready, really ready and eager to do the right thing. So lots of parents of, of white kids find um, a political home at Surge. Um, another great resource that we've turned to over the years is Embrace Race. It's an organization for parents across lines of race who are raising kids um, who are thoughtful, informed and brave about race. So that's they're another great resource um, in addition to Surge. And so listeners, it's Surge, S-U-R-J dot org. Now, one of the things that's also happening at the same time is there's an attack on accurate historical curriculum in the United States of America. And with this attack underway and books actually being banned in schools, ridiculously so, it would seem that it's almost more important for parents to talk about race and accurate history with their children. And so I want to double share this website, Surge, S-U-R-J dot org. I love what it says when you open the page. It says, a home for white people working for justice. We, When we fight racism, we all win. And can you share a little bit about that and about where do you see white people's role in fighting racism can be the most effective? Yeah, absolutely, Kristen. I mean, I think when I first came into this work, I know that um, I was taught that racism was something that um, only impacted people of color. And at Surge, we know that um, when we fight racism, we all win. It's actually good for all of us. That, of course, racism and white supremacy impact communities of color in ways that are very different than white communities. But we know that race was created in this country to break solidarity, to break our natural tendency to unite, because those at the top know if we all get together, there's more of us than there are of them. And we would actually have the power to, to win really significant change in this country. And so at Surge, one of our core values is really organizing from a player, place of what we call shared stake. Let me explain what I mean by that. Um, you know, I'll, we can use policing as one example. You know, we know that Black people and people of color overwhelmingly bear the brunt of police murder and incarceration because of systemic racism. And I think those of us who are white need to understand that we're not better off in a world with more policing either. <laughs> you know, first of all, there's a whole lot of white people who are actually directly impacted and negatively impacted by policing in prisons. You know, there's many people in our membership who have loved ones or they themselves have been incarcerated um, because of the criminalization of poverty or drugs or the lack of mental health supports in our communities. Um, but even if we haven't been directly impacted yet, we are all affected by the lack of community funding for the things we all need. Schools, healthcare, public infrastructure. I know your crew, you know, you all have been doing so much organizing around the need to invest in care infrastructure. It's a really important place um, where we need to be investing and instead we're pumping resources into these systems of harm. So you know, when we think about our stake, that you know, it is about standing in solidarity, but it's also about creating a world where we are also better off too. Um, and I think that allows us to stay in this work, you know, for, for the long haul. And speaking of the long haul, in the long haul, if you look at what's happening in our country and our communities, we absolutely need white people to talk to white people about racism and about how it's critically important to end it. Now, those conversations have sometimes been called, quote, difficult conversations or other types of conversations um, when we're looking at people saying, hey, you need to have difficult conversations, but they don't have to be difficult. And you have a lot of tips about how white people can talk to white people about racism and help change hearts, minds and public policy. What is your top sort of 
I don't know, three to 500 tips about having those <laughs> conversations with people who might not come in from the same angle that you're coming in on these topics? Oh, Kristen, I so appreciate this question because it really is, for those of us who are white, this really is our work. And I think, you know, there can sometimes be a tendency to want to turn away from our people. I think especially when we first come into consciousness about race. I know this is true for me. I would hear, you know, racist things come out of my family members or my friends, you know, mouths, and I would want to kind of shirk away from it. But really, you know, this is our responsibility. These are our folks. Um, and so, you know, there's a couple things that are at the core of our approach. One is that we have to stay really curious. We have to ask more questions and, and we also have to, um, we have to engage in people's real lived experience. We can't, we know that we don't change people's minds by spewing facts and figures, but actually being in relationship with people and being curious over time is the thing that actually does shift people. Um, and you know what the thing is, Kristen, if we don't do it, we cede that territory either to the right or we leave that work to be done by our comrades of color. And we know that that's not their responsibility. So at Surge, we really um, try to create a community where people can be in relationship with each other and stay in it um, through these really, you know, sometimes challenging conversations. But I also want to encourage your listeners to think like, what if it was easy? You know, people surprise me all of the time. And I think for so many of us who are white, we're socialized not to talk about race. But sometimes it can seem scarier than it actually is when we get into the conversation with people. And I love that you lifted up conversations, plural, and also stick with it. Because one of the things that I think sometimes people that I've talked with, white people that I've talked with, um, have wanted to happen is one and done conversations. Like, oh, let me just tell you. And now I'm done 15 seconds later. And so really, sometimes I get feedback that people feel like they aren't staying true to their moral compass if they don't come in at those conversations, one and done and instead come in curious. So I just want to uplift again, the importance of the tips. And I've loved and read the surge um, toolkits of staying curious, asking, taking that deep breath and saying things like, where did you get that idea? Why are you thinking that way? What experience have you had? That's not my experience. And sticking with the conversation through questions, which can feel very uncomfortable, to be honest, because you're not like right in there with the sledgehammer saying, that's not right. You know, this is terrible. That does not work. Studies show that when you come in with the sledgehammer, it doesn't work. It's over time asking those questions, sort of in almost the Socratic method that totally. does actually bring people around. But there's that tension. And I'm curious if you have tips for our listeners, that tension of feeling like you just really immediately have to say, you're wrong. You know, it's hard <laughs> not to do that. I'm just going to say that. Maybe I'm talking only about me, but I've also heard from other people. It's hard to stick through it with the questioning way of like, how come you think that way? You know, that didn't happen to me. Here's the story of what happened with me. Now, has anything happened like that with you? You know, and usually through many conversations, I will share with you, once you start asking those questions, people do actually come along. I'm I'm proof. I've had those conversations time and time again. And, and it does move people more than me saying, you're wrong. But what are your oh, tips absolutely. on that tension? Well, and I, I've been in it and it's real. And I think, you know, you know, I remember someone first... I've just had so many, I've had so many experiences kind of early on in my journey where I can look back now and realize someone was asking a sincere question and I took it as an attack or I used it as, a, as an exam, you know, way to prove that how much I knew I wasn't really being strategic. You know, it's going to take a lot of us. We need a lot more people in this movement than we have now. 
And so our work is really to think like organizers and think, what is it going to take to bring this person with me along over time? You know, look, sometimes a call out is the right move, but it's not our only move. And I think too often we default to that. And so I think one thing that's that's helped me stay in that tension over time, Kristen, is like getting really curious about what's going on in my body, you know, being like, ooh, there, my stomach's tight. Okay, Aaron, that's happening. Like, take a breath. And so just starting to notice my reactions has also been a helpful, a helpful tool over time. Yeah, I mean, I think that deep breath tool is a good one. I've had to take many deep breaths. To yes. conversation. <laughs> it's like, okay, please don't notice that I'm hyperbole. But seriously, the conversations work. Like I'm here, I'm a person who's done the conversations. I've had them work over time. And the curiosity of, you know, just having people answer their own question about why do you feel that way? Often it may, illuminates more than any sort of, you're thinking the wrong way why the way they're thinking is wrong <laughs> and create the totally. change, you know? Totally. Um, and there's all this research that shows that our often people's political beliefs actually don't line up with their own lived experience. And so if you can be curious enough to help people reflect on their own lives, often they will talk themselves out of their own point. So yeah, that's just plus one to that point. Yeah, I've seen it. I've seen it happen um, so many times. So we only have one 30 seconds left. Where can people go again to get the toolkit, to follow you, to stay involved? And we need people to stay involved. This is a long fight. We need white people to talk to white people about race, racism, police violence, and how to end it. And Surge is here to help you. So how can people get involved? Yeah, absolutely. So folks should head to our website, surj.org, surge.org. You can find the Stop Cop City toolkit there. You can sign up to become a member. You can find a chapter in your community. It'll help you stay connected to the campaign on the ground in Atlanta. Um, and I would say white moms in particular, we need you. My own mama is a proud Surge member. Um, and you can also find us on all the social media channels. So showing up for racial justice on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. And yeah, we're trying to build a movement where white folks um, can become part of the solution instead of part of the challenge and the problem. And so we need you on our team and we'd love to welcome some new folks into our work. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you for being on. Thank you for showing up for racial justice. Thank you for all you do. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Back at you. Thanks for having me. Well, that's it for our show today. Thanks for tuning in as we tackle the top topics facing our nation in a way that requires the most boring disclaimer in the history of the planet Earth. Here it goes. Views expressed on this show are those of the individual speakers and should not be attributed to Moms Rising, to this station, or to any news or social media service that may disseminate a recording of this show to the public or to any segment of the public. Boom! We'll catch you next week. We're gonna fight for love.